Fast Forward Productions. The women are speaking. The original concept of CSA was that you buy in a share of a farm and you provide your labor to help run that farm. And in return, you get the goods that that farm produces. So if you get late blight and all of your tomatoes die that season, your members are also investing in that risk. You're listening to the Good Dirt Podcast. This is a place where we dig into the nitty gritty of sustainable living through food, fashion, and lifestyle. And we're your hosts, Mary and Emma Kingsley, the mother and daughter founder team of Lady Farmer. We're sowing seeds of slow living through our community platform, events, and online marketplace. We started this podcast as a means to share the wealth of information and quality conversations that we're having in our world as we dream up and deliver ways for each of us to live into the new paradigm, one that is regenerative, balanced, and whole. We want to put the microphone in front of the voices that need to be heard the most right now. The farmers, the dreamers, the designers, and the doers. So come cultivate a better world with us. We're so glad you're here. Now, let's dig in. Welcome back to the good dirt. Happy June. Happy summer. I got all married and celebrated. And thank you so much for bearing with us for our little break. We hope you enjoyed the past couple of episodes, those little blasts from the past. We personally selected those two episodes as interviews that we loved and wanted to hear again ourselves. So we hope that you also enjoyed it. So let's see. Where are we? It's June. Mom, what do you think about bringing back the slow living consult. Yes, yes. And I think we should offer some lucky listener a gift of a free slow living consult. Yeah, totally. So we did this either last summer or a couple of summers ago. And now who knows? (laughs) (laughs) It's all a blur. Right. So if you call or email in the good dirt podcast at gmail.com or if you call our voicemail 443-459-1950 and tell us a little bit about yourself and your journey and what brings you to the podcast. You might just win a slow living consult with us. What is a slow living consult, you might ask? Well, it's really sort of a version of what we do here on the podcast, which is bring people on and chat about sustainability and slow living and their work in that space. But sometimes, you know, you don't have to have written a book or started a movement or done something notable. You just need to be interested in slow living and sustainability. And maybe you don't know where to start. Maybe you have been doing it for many years and you are a master and you want to tell us all about that. It can be anything, but we love connecting with listeners. We've done this a few times and sometimes they turn into podcast episodes themselves. So all you need to do is email the good dirt podcast at gmail.com or call in 443-459-1950 at the end of Next month, we will pick a winner and we'll let you know. And we'll have you on for a slow living consult. And speaking of slow living, as you know, we often talk about the idea of slow food here on The Good Dirt. 
and the fact that eating local food is one of the ways we can shift in the direction of a slower, more sustainable lifestyle. So, Emma, maybe for some of our listeners who are new here or just beginning to explore slow living, I thought it might be helpful to review why eating locally is important. It's such a multifaceted topic, but thought we might just go over what are some of the key issues involved. Yeah, well, it does cover so much. So, first of all, supporting your local economy. So, even just thinking about when you go to the big chain grocery store, I don't know, it's multifaceted because, of course, the big chain grocery store might employ a lot of your community or something to that effect. But also, sure, they're employing the local community, but first, you're paying out these huge, huge multinational corporations. And it's shocking, the grocery chains, who they're owned by. And at the end of the day, they're all owned by like basically one company, if not two. So what do you think about from an economic standpoint, buying locally, buying outside of that system, supporting real people who are getting to take home more of that benefit? That's so important, just from a plain old economic standpoint and supporting our local economies. Yes, Also, this might seem obvious, but sometimes we don't think about it so much, but eating food closer to the source is much more likely to be more fresh and more nutrient dense. And it's therefore better for you because it's not traveling as far. And also local growers are usually smaller scale and not participating in the industrial food complex as much as the bigger operations and are more likely to be practicing sustainable and regenerative growing methods, which is helping to heal the soil and create more good dirt. Definitely. So another thing about supporting local growers is when you do it, you are helping to rebuild a system that just is kinder to the planet and to the people tending it. You know, we've heard about supply chain, supply chain, supply chain the past three years and truly investing in and bolstering your local food economy is like your supply chain is, you know, your farmer and your farmer gets their things from the earth right around them. It's really cool to be able to sort of circumvent that. Yes. And local food helps create community. And that brings us to our guest for today, Mo Mutu of Mutu Orchards CSA, which is our personal local food source in our household with my husband and I here in Maryland. And we are so grateful every single day for the beautiful food that they provide for us. For those listening who might not know what a CSA is yet, it's a Community Supported Agriculture. It stands for Community Supported Agriculture. It is a production and marketing model that allows customers to buy shares of a farm's harvest in advance. This really helps the farmer because they get the cash up front to do what they need to do. And in this case, it's a monthly payment. So it can work a myriad of different ways. But basically, consumers become CSA members by you agree to the full season of membership and it allows the farmers more predictable income and it frees them up to really do their job really well. So one note I want to say on local food and buying local food is, and back to the economics of it, a lot of times it is way more expensive than buying things in the local store. But a lot of times it actually isn't. And we've seen this recently, especially with the spike of price in eggs, for instance. You're seeing eggs being super expensive, but eggs from local farms were way cheaper, which 
because of the way things are so backwards, it was like that was surprising that locally sourced eggs were cheaper. But at the end of the day, they really should be cheaper. And the things in the grocery stores should be more expensive because they're traveling so much farther and so many people's hands are touching those products. So it just sort of is a glimpse into how the systems favor these huge multinational corporations and a lot of the costs are not being taken into account and passed on to the consumer, which means that a lot of pieces of the supply chain are being exploited, namely earth and the people involved in the supply chain. Just keep that in mind. So yes, it is the price of things currently. I mean, honestly, it's not even true to say that it's always more expensive to buy locally because who knows, it's always changing, but the differences can be drastic. So I just want to note that and note that we're super aware of that. And we're super aware of this issue of accessibility. And we just want to share this example that we are so lucky and privileged to have in our community that this exists near us. I expect wherever you are, there might be something right around you that you're not aware of. And if there isn't, then growing interest in something like this can help there become one. And don't forget that local food includes what you might want to grow in your back garden or from a pot on your deck or in a flower box. Local food can mean the little herb you have in your kitchen window. As we always say, baby steps start small. So yes, back to our guest today, Mo Mutu of Mutu Orchard. They offer a whole diet year-round CSA share. As members, my husband and I, we go to the farm each week and we choose from this wide variety of sustainably grown vegetables and fruit and grass-fed dairy, whole grain flowers, pasture-raised beef, pork, chicken, eggs, and it's free choice. We get to choose what we want to take each week based on what we need. You'll hear Mo talk more about this free choice during the interview and why it works for them. Mutu Orchard is a third-generation sustainable farm in Loudoun County, Virginia. Rob and Mo live on the farm and operate the CSA while raising their two awesome kids. Their aim is to reclaim food from field to kitchen and provide healthy whole foods for the local community. They are committed to healthy food, healthy animals, and they believe in the power of healthy soil and community. And speaking of community, this one was fun because we got to go to Mo's farmhouse in person and we sat in her beautiful living room and recorded this interview in person, which was so special for us. So you might hear that special something about an in-person interview. Very farm-like. Yes. Yeah, so here's Mo Mutu of Mutu Orchard. Maureen Mutu. Everyone knows me as Mo, and I am a farmer in Loudoun County, Virginia. My husband and I run a whole diet CSA farm called Mutu Orchard. How did you get here? (laughs) Tell us your story. What most people usually ask, I did not come from a farming background at all. I grew up in the suburbs of Cleveland, Ohio, but when I was in college at Miami University, I was a culture anthropology student and I studied abroad. And while I was studying abroad in Brazil, I sort of 
fell in love with the farming community there. I was studying and living with folks that grew black pepper and cacao and all these really amazing crops that I had never seen before on the coast of Brazil and Bahia. And that's kind of what started it for me. I never really thought about food and where food came from, but that sort of is what really piqued my interest in farming. And then to be honest, what kind of progressed was I was a bartender and most of my guys who came in for happy hour were corn farmers from the surrounding town in Ohio. And I just used to shoot the shit with them at happy hour and they would talk about corn farming and subsidies and complain about the government. (laughs) And so I wrote a paper about corn farmers in Ohio as a senior in college. And it was kind of like a rabbit hole after that. That was sort of what started my interest in farming. And so I pursued a graduate degree in cultural anthropology and that's what brought me to DC. And I TA'd and taught anthropology at GW for two years and finished my master's degree there. And I was studying sort of the local food movement. And what year was this? Well, I took a few years. I took a little, a little gap between college I and grad school. a gap on your resume. <laughs> yeah, that was... Yeah. What were you doing? I was living in Berkeley, California, living my best life. Great. Yeah. I spent my 20s living in Berkeley, living my best life. Awesome. Yeah. My original plan was to stay on the West Coast and live in Berkeley, but I got this teaching fellowship at GW that I sort of like couldn't pass up. So I would have never thought I was going to stay here, Mm -hmm. but that's what happens in life, right? So I was studying kind of the like local food movement, but from a cultural anthropological perspective, keep in mind the impetus for kind of this movement, especially here was Michael Pollan wrote Omnivore's Dilemma and it was published in 06, I'm pretty sure, 06, 07, somewhere in that. And that book and then Food Inc. coming out, like those two things at once, like really, I think, put this fire underneath the local food movement. I mean, it was happening and farmers markets were happening and CSAs were happening. These things were all there. But I think that in 08, when I really started researching this stuff, it was just like, that was the thing, right? The local food movement being a locavore was like a thing that no one had ever really talked about before. I spent a lot of time working on and sort of volunteering and studying on farms. And I thought I was going to finish out my PhD and be an anthropologist and live a academic life. But I liked farming more. I mean, I like just hanging out on farms. There was something about it that like really called to me that I was like, I don't think I want to teach and be an academic. I think I want to grow food for a living. (laughs) Cool. And so I did kind of like what a nerdy academic would do. I like dove in. I read every book I could find about organic farming. I got a like unpaid apprenticeship at a farm to try to just like dive in and learn as much as I possibly could to figure out like how to do this as a living. And this is all while you're in DC. Yeah. While I was in grad school at GW, I was flying back to California with regularity because I was sort of studying the local food movement there and some of the like super hippie farms in Northern California, particularly interested in why so many young women were going back at that time. A lot of the interns or farm workers on the farms were all young women. And so I was like really curious to why that was the case. But when I decided to not pursue a PhD and life happened. I decided to stay in DC. The first farm I got a job at was called Radix Farm. It is now actually Owl's Nest Farm in Upper Marlboro. Oh, yeah. So oh. Kristen Carbone was the farmer there. And I don't know that I would still be farming if it weren't for her. She's mm-hmm. just like, she was just this badass lady who like was doing it on her own. Is that who Gail Taylor said she... 
Yes, she worked with Gail. Oh my gosh, we just interviewed Gail last yeah. week and she said the exact same thing. So about they worked Kristen. together at Claggett. Yes. Yeah, so yes. Gail and Kristen worked together at Claggett. And Kristen sort of left Claggett and went out on her own and truly just like she started a farm from nothing on her own. I didn't know anything other than like what you read in books at Mm -hmm. the time. And she taught me a lot. She was really patient and sweet. So would you say that it was the bartending experience talking to the guys or? I mean... I think that was what made me realize farming was a thing in the world. Okay. I think like that's so funny. Yes. But you don't think about, I mean, you really don't when you're, when you're not around farms and you grow up in the suburbs, it's just like not something that you think about that often until you like go on a field trip to pet the alpacas or whatever. But for me, I think the moment I was like, I really want to be a farmer was I was visiting this farm called the Green String Institute in Northern, it's in Petaluma, California. And I got to like hang out and work for the day. And I was like trying to, you know, be an anthropologist also. And there was something about just the whole vibe, the lifestyle. I was like, I want to do this. Like everyone seems so freaking happy. Yeah. (laughs) Like, I mean, it's the same way that I think like small scale organic farming often is romanticized, right? Like it feels like this like idyllic lifestyle of frolicking through the fields and petting your cows. And (laughs) it's not that, but it feels like that. And I think that's how it's presented. And when you just see it from the outside, you're like, this is awesome. (laughs) Oh my gosh. I would love to talk about that. Can we talk about that somewhere? Yes. You know, at what point you were, you were the bartender and these farmers came in and they obviously, or it sounds to me like they were the commodity farmers. Oh yeah. And I want to know at what point you realized there was a disconnect between that and what you were drawn to. Yeah. I mean, because I then like spent a semester of college writing a paper about essentially commodity farming in Ohio, I think the two were so separate in my mind also because I recognized that none of those people were growing food that people eat. I mean, they were growing food for animals or oil or, but they weren't growing food that people eat. And so it was a totally different world from the beginning, I think. So was there a moment where you asked like, okay, where are the people growing food that people eat? Yeah, I mean, like I read Omnivore's Dilemma also, aside from my issues with Michael Pollan, I think that opened my eyes to a lot of things too. It wasn't foreign to like gardening. My mom was an avid flower gardener growing up and I wasn't foreign to the idea of like growing things, but my best friend growing up had a huge garden in her backyard. And so it was like some space I played in, but it was in the suburbs. Cool. Well, really quickly, let's go from sort of where you left off with your story and then to like how you ended up where we're sitting. Yeah. So once I just like, again, I feel like I took a very academic approach to getting into farming. I was also a little like I was in my late 20s and kind of ready to like figure out what I was going to do with my life and Mm -hmm. stop floating around so much. So like I said, I kind of just like dove in Mm -hmm. wherever I could. I recognize I'm from a place of privilege. So I had support from family members to help me sort of explore my interest where Mm -hmm. a lot of people don't have those privileges. But I took an unpaid apprenticeship on a farm. I started volunteering at a place called the Neighborhood farm initiative in DC that was an urban farm and they ended up hiring me on I think they realized the value that I was I was able to write grants yeah. <laughs> so I think there was a lot of value in that they ran programming in DC mainly by the Fort Totten Metro was their big mm-hmm. farm space and I really liked the urban ag world at that point and I thought it was amazing that they were sort of transforming these urban spaces into growing spaces and I just like by chance of I don't even know, fate, 
I was invited to a dinner party in DC with this restaurateur named Michael Babin, who owns the Neighborhood Restaurant Group. And he was looking for people to start a nonprofit farm that did a lot of different programmatic things, but also grew food to support his restaurants. It just happened that we like hit it off at a dinner of a bunch of people who were interested in the project and he wanted a farmer and I knew enough that I was like, I could try. And I think coupled with the fact that it was a fledgling nonprofit and they needed people who like could help write grants and could do sort of the whole gamut of starting a nonprofit from scratch. And we were leasing the land that's right near Mount Vernon. That for me was sort of how I learned everything because there was nothing there. It was fields of grass. There was zero infrastructure there (laughs) for a vegetable farm. I mean, I just had to hit the ground running. It was just you. So I was there were they hired a few people at that point. So I was the farmer. They hired someone to do some of the educational programmatic stuff, like run field trips. And that was how we brought in a little bit of money. And then pretty soon after we started, they started the mobile farmer's market. And that was, we bought an old school bus that we converted into a market that we were bringing into DC. It was an amazing learning opportunity. And I was lucky. I mean, I had a full time paid job that Mm. they offered me. And so we turned it into a garden with digging forks and <laughs> shovels and, and a lot of the restaurant? sweat. No. Okay. No, not, no, <laughs> no. There were, there were two and the chefs are not there anymore, but there were two chefs with their neighborhood restaurant group, one at Vermilion and one at Birch and Barley in DC. Oh, yeah. So Kyle Bailey was at Birch and Barley at the time and Tony Chittum was at Vermilion and they were super willing to just work with me about, so like I could give them like flea beetle eaten radishes and they would like figure out something to do with them on their Mm -hmm. menu, but they were really creative chefs and had tasting menus so they could absorb like little tiny bits of things. The production farm of Arcadia came later. That was after I had already left. They do have like a large production space now, but that was when they took over more land on Route 1. And so that was after I was there. So Um, Arcadia was what it was originally called? It still is. Yeah. It's the Arcadia Center for Sustainable Agriculture. You kind of were there from the beginning. Yeah. mm -hmm, Yep. (laughs) When we filed for nonprofit status, that was like me in one of the restaurant kitchens (laughs) trying to start a nonprofit. But yeah. And then, so I stayed there for a few years and I enjoyed it. I liked creating the space. I had a lot of ownership over it because it was just grass. When I started, I owe a lot to the Mount Vernon farm team Mm because they were up the road and they used to drive some of their equipment down Route 1 in Fairfax to help me out, which was huge. They let me use some of their greenhouse space. They were really helpful to us in the beginning. And then we had a lot of kids come out to the farm, which I enjoyed, especially the population that was coming out were mostly kids from DC who had had no experience on farms at all. And there's something really fun about seeing kids pull a carrot out of the ground for the first time or that moment when they realize like the chicken that they see is like a chicken. And those things are just like, they're interesting. And that's where their chicken nuggets come. Exactly. (laughs) Sort of. So those were fun moments to see. So I enjoyed working with kids on the farm a lot. And I enjoyed making like fun, interactive spaces for them. We had a lot of cool little gardens and things that were kid friendly. And in the meantime, in 2011, I met Rob Mutu. (laughs) And we met at a photo shoot 
for Flavor Magazine. They oh, were, I remember mm-hmm, this yeah, story. Yeah, which is so <laughs> silly. I actually have the cover framed over there. I haven't hung it back up yet. Oh my gosh. Uh, they gave it to us for our wedding. Actually. Sweet. <laughs> the Young Farmers issue. Everyone's in flannel. That's I, so funny. They made us all wear flannel. Oh my gosh. That was part of it. And then they made us all put on dresses and ties. It was bizarro. But um, <laughs> anyways, so Rob and I met there. And at the time, the Arcadia was looking to put in an orchard. He was the only organic orchard person I had ever like heard of around here. So I was like, hey, I'm going to come check out your farm. Mm-hmm. And he was like, hey, come check out my farm. <laughs> and my etching. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> so that, to be honest, so I did. I came and checked out the farm. And yeah, now we're married with two kids. Great. So. <laughs> So you're on that farm now. <laughs> you got married and moved here and now you're part of in and you guys created this. Yeah. So what happened was, so, I mean, I stayed at Arcadia for about, for like a, a year, but that was in Fairfax. But, and I eventually decided to move out here and I, that commute was just like not yeah. something that was fun for me at all. And it seemed like a really exciting new challenge to like take over the vegetable operation at a production farm like where they were growing for a business right that wasn't the nonprofit model at all which is sort of what I had experienced before and so and I really liked Rob. So what was happening before you came here Rob was doing he was doing the orchard was there veggie production? Yes so Rob is the third generation of Mutu Orchard. His grandparents started the business as sort of like a backyard fun wanting to grow fruit. His grandfather was a reporter and they did it for fun and they just like really liked eating fresh ripe homegrown fruit. And so they started selling fruit in Tyson's Seven Corners area out of a little farm, like roadside farm stand. And Rob's dad, Charles Mutu, took over and sort of expanded the fruit business. The original Mutu Orchard was in Vienna, Virginia. And they, in the 70s, bought two farms out here in Loudoun County that were just mainly peach orchards, but they grew like cherries and plums and had a U-Pick operation also for cherries. In 2006, after Rob's grandmother died, they sold the Vienna farm and moved out here permanently. And that was sort of, I think, when, you know, Rob kind of took over the business, graduated from UVA in 2002 and sort of came right back to the farm. Always kind of knew he was going to come back to the farm and ran the fruit business for a while. So when was other stuff added in? So it kind of happened gradually. I mean, I think... Like I was saying, I mean, I think this sort of like movement was happening in the world and Rob being an uber hippie was like, uh, maybe we don't want to be spraying pesticides. Because I mean, to grow fruit well, to be honest, you have to, especially in this climate where it's humid and there's a lot of bugs, like the way to get good yields of fruit that's going to make you bunny and have a business, you have to spray them, right? Yeah. And they were, I mean, they were careful and they, you know, they never like sprayed unnecessarily, but I think it was like, maybe we, there's another way of doing this. And I think he just kind of realized pretty quickly that organic fruit was not going to be a way to make a living and make a business. Because it was so susceptible to things. And also probably it didn't look exactly the same. Yeah. I mean, both of those things, like, I mean, especially like, you know, things like apples, like they're still totally fine, but they might have like that cat facing or something on them. They're not like grade A perfect. Their family business was peaches, which like soft fruit like that is just so much more. I mean, it's delicious, right? Everything wants to eat it. It's so much more susceptible to fungus. And this had been orchards for years. 
So the fungus and the molds and the bugs were all already here. They knew about it. So just like (laughs) dropping a spray program and trying to have your trees then go organic was, you know, you weren't going to be able to sell enough fruit to like make a living. So he started, you know, diversifying and, you know, got some sheep to graze underneath the orchard trees and was starting to grow some vegetables, things like tomatoes and sweet potatoes, like big voluminous. He likes the big voluminous crops. Things you get a lot of at once. And then kind of started diversifying more and growing some grain. There was nobody doing like small local grains then. He found a combine for really cheap from a guy up the road and was sort of growing and milling flour and bringing it into the DuPont farmer's market before anybody was doing that. Where were you milling? He had little electric mills like that you can buy it, <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, and he built these like wooden hoppers. I mean, again, he's an engineer, right? It's like he has an engineer mind. He built these like wooden hoppers where he could and he did have a seed cleaner. And I mean, I think similarly, it's just a hard like there are people doing it now, but kind of no one was doing it then. And like bagging up and selling five pound bags of flour at DuPont, it was, you know, great, but not a way to like hard to scale. Yes. And we kept doing it. I mean, our first couple years of the whole diet CSA, we still had the combine. We still grew wheat and had the combine and would mill wheat flour and give our members wheat berries that we had grown. But again, we were only, we had like 35 members then. And then I think once we scaled up a little bit, that was a really easy project to not do anymore, especially because by then we had cows. Back then we had cows and sheep and pigs and chickens. Oh my gosh. And we wanted the land for not for grain. We wanted it for animals, for grazing. So that's a good, can we jump to, I don't think we've even said yet, like, well, you said at the very beginning that you do the Mutu Orchard CSA. Yeah, you made me talk about college. Yeah. I'm like, <laughs> yeah. I'm like, tell me about the years that you were in Berkeley. <laughs> so what happened when you were 25? <laughs> yeah. Introduced, I guess, the CSA concept and the full diet CSA things and like kind of what you're doing now. Yeah. And how that evolved for you guys. Yeah. I mean, those are two very separate things because, I mean, this CSA model, if someone he doesn't know. So CSA stands for Community Supported Agriculture. The original concept of CSA was essentially that you buy in a share of a farm and you provide your labor to help run that farm. And in return, you get the goods that that farm produces. Some people credit the beginning of CSA out of this movement in Japan that was happening with people who were really worried about pesticides and the effects of pesticides. And so small organic farms were popping up, but they're incredibly labor intensive. Other people credit the start of CSA with these two farms in New England that were, I mean, essentially just, again, like needing labor. And this idea of like communal farming, there's a really interesting piece that the Rodale Institute wrote actually about the two, like the first two CSA farms in the U.S. One was in New Hampshire. But again, as an anthropologist, I always find those things interesting because it discredits. There were a bunch of people of color in the South who were running these sort of communal farms like way before the 70s with these two farms get credited for. So anyways, the actual like where CSA started is like a big, a much bigger question. And then it started becoming popular like in the 80s and 90s or popular is the wrong word, but it became a thing. And again, that was the original model. You exchanged labor for, you know, what the farm was producing. It quickly 
became sort of your traditional like vegetable box style CSA. And I think what people realized in sort of these small scale vegetable operations that to start it, you need a lot of money up front and you need a lot of money in the spring at the beginning of the season. And so in some ways, it became a way for small farmers to start their farms and make enough money to live by receiving all of the money up front. So it was a membership service where somebody paid you for the whole season, but then you were beholden to give them a box of vegetables every week throughout the growing season. That is a great model and it's still popular and still a lot of people do it. And it's a great way for young farmers to start up. It can be really stressful because, you know, if you don't have what your members have already bought, it can feel really stressful. But at the same time, I think the whole idea of CSA is that the members also take on the inherent risks of farming. They're investing. Exactly. So if you get late blight and all of your tomatoes die that season, your members are also investing in that risk. And so it provides some comfort for farmers too. It also doesn't have the volatility of farmers markets where, you know, a lot of young new farmers go to farmers markets also, but like if it rains, nobody comes that Saturday and you make no money or the markets where people actually come are really hard to get into because like established farmers are already there. So if you're new and starting out, you have to go to the crappy farmer's markets that nobody goes to and you're making like $200 and you've wasted all your produce. Like you've picked all this produce and then it sat out there all day. And like, what do you do with it after the fact? So CSA became kind of another way to market your products. So then in the last like 20-ish years, I think people sort of took the concept and ran with it in a lot of different directions. So one way they did it was by adding meat onto that concept. So meat CSAs became a thing where, you know, you bought up front like a herd of pigs and then throughout the season you got cuts of that pig every month or every week or whatever. And what we do, we call it a whole diet CSA. And there are a few farms in the country who sort of do this kind of model. And the biggest, and I think where like Rob and I were inspired is a farm called Essex Farm in Essex, New York. Mark and Kristen Kimball run that farm. She is a New York Times bestselling author. They were sort of doing everything. I mean, they were, you know, they grow vegetables. They raise all their livestock. They had a small raw milk dairy herd and they were providing just like an amazing abundance for their members. They were also using like draft power at the time. They're very large now. They're like hundreds of members and serve New York City. And Wow. Wait, what's draft power? Horses. Oh my gosh. Before industrial like Clydesdales yes pre-industrial farming wow that's so cool yeah and there's been you know there are others now around the country and then there are an increasing number of CSAs that you know are like a traditional vegetable CSA but then sort of co-op with a bunch of other farms to do the same thing so they'll grow vegetables and maybe have chickens or something but then they have a meat producer that provides meat for their CSA they will buy in milk from someone even a lot of times they'll add bread or whatever other goods and kind of do like an aggregate CSA. And I think those are becoming increasingly popular, meat especially. I think as awareness is increasing about the health benefits of grass-fed meats and I think also the sort of animal welfare of non-factory farmed animals, I think meat CSAs are becoming more popular. So a lot of people want to add that on. And we try to spread the word of the climate benefits of the grass-fed and the managed grazing and stuff. And that's a new concept to a lot of people. Yeah, exactly. So in 2011, we kind of decided to put all of our eggs in one basket and go with this model. So we started with 30, 35 members 
and four cows. <laughs> Back then we did sheep also. So we had lamb and we got a, we had like 10 pigs. And so you got all the animals just for this or did you have some of those? So Rob had been doing sheep already and chickens and egg laying chickens. Broilers were added as an enterprise and we started everything pretty small, pretty quickly then scaled. So we started at like 35 members, went to 60, went to 75, stayed at 75 for a minute, like two years, went to 85, stuck at 85 for a minute, like went to 95. And over the past five or so years, we've like jumped to 100, gone back down to 85, jumped to 105, gone back. And like around 100 is kind of our sweet spot for what we feel like we can manage, what our land can support in a like healthy way, what our soil can support and what allows us to still produce most of what we're offering. And so, yeah, I mean, it kind of has gone through, I think, you know, now we've, we're in our 12th season doing this kind of model. And I think we've seen the like ebb and flow of popularity of CSA through the last decade. I think it was really, really popular in the Omnivore's Dilemma era, the Food Inc. era, like everybody wanted to join a CSA. And I think it was really popular for a while. A lot of people did it, tried it out. It did not work for their lifestyle. And so they dropped out. And it kind of, I think popularity sort of waned. And then I think it like rose again. And I think the it rose in popularity along with like food delivery services like Blue Apron and those things. And I think a lot of people realize that those like Blue Apron-esque ideas were a lot more convenient for their lifestyle. And so again, I think the popularity of the, the traditional CSA kind of waned again. And I think since COVID and sort of the food supply issues and scarcity at the grocery store, and there's kind of now been a, a large uptick again. And has that sustained or have you seen that die down at all since? I think for people that I we know in the farming world that are doing this, there is definitely more interest than there was a couple years ago. Okay. So it's stayed. It's not like it was like, I mean, you I remember like the panic toilet paper buying and then it's like, who cares? I think a lot of meat producers got that like okay. toilet paper-esque. Yeah. Because like, <laughs> when they were started like limiting the number of pounds of meat you could buy at the grocery store, people like freaked out and were like, what is this? So, yeah, I mean, I think there has been, you know, just I think coupled with like increasing awareness about like I said, the health benefits of grass-fed meats, the health benefits of unpasteurized dairy. I think as more people are like learning about these kind of things, consumers are looking for more options and there's just not that many around. So really quickly today, a member of your CSA every week gets, what do they get? So we are in the dead of winter right now. Oh yeah, maybe <laughs> not today. And uh, <laughs> No, in but June. it's good. I mean, no, it's good because I feel really proud of what we have in the dead of winter. So today is, you know, February, 15th and our members would get sweet potatoes, potatoes, onions, turnips, beets, storage radishes, cabbage, parsnips, rutabagas, kale, collard greens, lettuce, pork, chicken, beef, eggs, yogurt, milk, six kinds of flour, and eight kinds of dry goods, rice, beans, I'm probably forgetting something. And the flour and dry goods, y'all, do you produce those here? We do not. We buy all of our flours and dry goods from an organic mill in Pennsylvania. And it's been a great add-on, I think, for our membership and certainly encourages people to shop less at a conventional store. It also just encourages, I think, more whole eating. 
Let me tell you about what it's like to drift to sleep on a 100% natural wool pillow sourced from regenerative farms wrapped in a lovingly handmade organic cotton pillowcase. Oh wait, I can't. I think it's just something you're going to have to try for yourself. Holy Lamb Organics is proud to carry on a centuries-old tradition of making beautiful textile products by hand. Combining heritage methods with pristine natural and organic materials and sustainable business practices, they bring a dedication to healthy living and the environment. Everything Holy Lamb does reflects their devotion to the planet and its inhabitants. From their supply chain to their manufacturing processes to their facilities management, nothing happens without considering the environmental impact. Most importantly, they're also dedicated to fair labor practices, secure working conditions, diversity, and inclusion. From the farm to the mill to their partner manufacturers, everyone shares the same high ideals of a safe, respectful workplace and environmentally conscious methods. Making good products enables them to do good work. Every time we order something from Holy Lamb Organics, we're proud to support a small town made in America company. You can find Holy Lamb Organics in the Lady Farmer Marketplace. For additional marketplace discounts, you can join the Almanac, our member-supported community platform. Find Holy Lamb Organics products including pillows, sheets, natural wool comforters, and more in the bedding section of the Lady Farmer Marketplace at www.ladyfarmer.com. As a member of your CSA, I want to just express what an education it is to procure your food this way. Education and seasonal eating and the cycles of the food year. You just referred to that. You said, well, it's winter. So this is what you get in winter. So normally people would go to the store. You have the whole selection of everything everywhere in the world. You can get your bananas. Literally. And you can get, you know, whatever you want. You get it, you know, you have a recipe in your hand. I'm going to make this chicken dish or whatever. And you go and you select all the things, some fresh, some canned or whatever. So you sort of like forget going to the store. You're going to this farm every week and you get what they have. You get what's grown. And it's just an adventure and it's a whole nother lifestyle. We talk about CSAs a lot and eating seasonally, eating locally and all all these things you get when you join a CSA. Now, people might not have a CSA around them or they don't know how to find out about one or how do you recommend people find this sort of way to eat wherever they are? That is a good question and can be really tricky. If organic is important to you, I think that is one thing because we're mostly little guys and a lot of the big organic farms are like in California. And so part of it is just where you are. Most successful CSAs are near a big metropolitan area where there is people who care about food. With the income level to support it. Exactly. The whole separate issue is one of the issues with CSA is that they're not that accessible to low income folks unless a CSA is specifically seeking that out. And that's for various reasons. I mean, one being that it's really hard to get your CSA verified to take any food benefit program. So you like to take SNAP is like a whole crazy process for a CSA to be able to take SNAP benefits. We've thought about getting creative with it from time to time, like having members who do have expendable income, like almost subsidizing shares for lower income folks. But it's the population around you because they have to come. They come to my farm every week and Loudoun County is the richest county in the country. (laughs) So even just like reaching out to low income populations is is hard. So part of it is, you know, being near a metropolitan area, I think. But if you are a person who wants to eat that way and you're not in such a 
urban area or suburban area, most places have some kind of farmer's market. I mean, and I, I, I don't know, joining a CSA is hard if you're not in a place that has the market for it, but farmer's markets are in our way to, to sort of get the same kind of seasonal local eating. Yeah. And there are a couple of websites and we will link them in the show notes here where you can put in your zip code and it'll have local growers come up and it is a quest and it is a decision to do this. And our program is not convenient at all. And we recognize that. I mean, to be able to make a living and do what we do, we have to do it this way. People have to come to the farm. And I mean, we've toyed with like potentially delivering at some point in the future, but just isn't viable right now. We can't do those kind of things. And so we recognize the investment that our members are putting into what we're doing. And so we try really hard to have something that they are excited about and want to be a part of. And part of that is also just fostering the idea of a CSA community, right? Like we feel so lucky that we have people that have been with us for 12 years. We have a lot of people that have been with us for like the six, eight, 10 year range, and they just renew every year. Part of it, I think, is because they're invested in us <laughs> also, like as people and as a small family. And they are people who also don't want to see the small family farm die. Um, <laughs> so part of it is just they have to be invested in us and our space and our idea as much as we have to provide for them. Right. And so we have been so lucky with the support we've had from our members because they pay our salary. I mean, that is the most important part of what we do. I think the other thing that we've sort of really sort of tapped into is this idea of choice in the CSA. So we set our CSA up like farmer's market style or grocery store style, and people just take whatever they want every week, which doesn't make sense when you explain it to other CSA farmers or farmers generally. Or anyone. I was telling someone about they're like, wait, you just take whatever you want? Yeah, it just, I know. Um, <laughs> it works though. <laughs> it works. And, you know, so I think we tried to get away really early on from the idea of like a money exchange for a good, right? So like no product that we have has like a monetary value on it because what our members are doing is they are paying our salaries. They are paying us to be their farmers. They are having paying for a membership to our farm. So just like a gym membership, right? It's like some people, everybody joins the gym for the same price and some people utilize the gym membership every day and some people use it once a week. And it's kind of the same vibe and the same idea. And I think everybody just has bought into this concept of like, supporting the farm and supporting each other as a CSA community of people who care about food and where it comes from and what they're eating. And so it's always worked for us. And the benefit of that for the members being like, they take whatever they want. So you don't end up with food you don't want and you get a lot of the things you do want. And one of the complaints we had heard a lot from, you know, the traditional box CSA model is that often, to be honest, it's too much food. Like a lot of times people feel this like unbelievable amount of guilt because they don't use everything in their CSA box. And then they're like composting or throwing out food and that feels really icky or they have no choice in what they're getting. So they're like, I don't want to eat turnips. And so 
then they get eight turnips, you know? And so I think a lot of people have adapted to that. So a lot of CSAs now offer some choice at least, or an online ordering form or something to, cause that was definitely a problem in the traditional box model. Some people like it. Like some people like the, like you get, and then you have to figure out what to do with your box that week. But I think some people, it really stresses them out. And similarly, like we wanted to encourage people to feel like a part of the farm. Like in the early days, we always used to talk about like we were just like glorified homesteaders. Like this was the lifestyle we wanted to lead for ourselves and our family. And we just were like doing it for 30 other people also because it you know, was easy to scale up a little bit. And so in the early days, I feel like we were just trying to encourage that sort of like lifestyle and vibe of just like a much simpler, easier homesteady life. <laughs> you feel like that's shifted? I do. I mean, I feel like it's shifted some in that, I mean, two of the biggest things that happened is like, I mean, we got, we just got bigger. We got bigger and we got older. <laughs> Having kids really changed all of that. Um, I mean, I think mainly because especially me at this point, am not as hands-on as I once was on the farm. Like we used to work 80 hours a week and Rob and I were working together and we loved it. And it was our life. And every morning we woke up and we farmed together all day and that was our lives. And then when we had kids, it was much less that way. And so I think I still feel that that is like what we're going for and what we're trying to support. But for our own personal lives, it's so it's just different than it used to be. <laughs> I want to go back to something we were talking about earlier where you said you were really attracted to that like romantic, small organic farm vibe. It is real, but it's also like very like not real. And so this is like zooming out a little bit from Mutu. But I guess with your experience, like what more do you have to say about that, about that sort of perception and like what it is versus the reality? Part of my life does feel that way still. Like part of my life really does feel like frolicking through the fields and like picking sun ripened tomatoes and especially now having kids, to be honest. Like some days I watch my kids like frolic through a field of sunflowers and I'm like, this is not real. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, you know, my daughter like picking snap peas and like shoving them in her face and them covered in blackberry juice, like all of those, like it's that, that shit is real. Yeah. <laughs> but then there's also the part of it of like, you know, we run a business, we spend a lot of time on the computer, you know, doing business stuff. And it's really hard work. I'm going to be 40 in June and my body feels it. It's, it's hard on your body. It's the kind of lifestyle where you don't get to leave at the end of the day. If you run a farm and live on your farm, that actually becomes your life. It's not a job. Like it's not an occupation. It's not a job. It is your whole lifestyle. And if you throw livestock into the mix, it's stressful in a way. If you care about your livestock, you know, you want to honor these animals as much as you possibly can. It's, it's a lot of stress too. I mean, it's just so much like making sure animals are cared for, making sure you're doing best by these creatures that are going to provide so much sustenance for you in your community. Um, and if an animal gets sick or dies or, I mean, it's just, it's all just like, so it's a lot, it's like an emotional burden. <laughs> you know, Rob and I talked a lot about the days where, you know, we butchered 500 chickens in a day. There's something like extremely emotionally taxing about that. Again, we're so small scale. We're so tiny in the grand scheme of feeding people in the world. But like that's a huge burden to bear to like kill all these animals and bag them and stick them in your freezer. Yeah. Um, so there's, you know, there's <laughs> there's like that sort of side of it that makes it hard that I don't think a lot of people think about. 
The other part that makes it hard is you just don't make a lot of money. I mean, especially living where we live, we don't expect to ever like be wealthy, but you know, it's hard to make a living doing this, especially if you're a small scale organic grower. Like it is really hard to make a living, especially for a family of four. Those parts of this like unbelievably wonderful lifestyle make it not as rosy sometimes. It kind of makes sense to me because, yes, you're making less than you can expect, but you basically have food and you many times, I'm not sure exactly in your case, but many times also the housing is pretty much either part of the farm or if you're working on a farm, it's part of your payment. So with food and housing sort of. Yeah, there's a big difference between like owning the farm and working on the farm, I think. I mean, you know, we have a mortgage. Is that like a full farm mortgage or the house mortgage? Or Yeah, I mean, so we are, I mean, we are, again, incredibly privileged in that my in-laws own half of the farm still. I mean, they're in their late 80s. Or my father-in-law's in his late 80s. So they still own the land. And then we bought this farm that we're on right now. They're almost, they're almost connected. <laughs> There's like a tiny sliver of woods. But we bought this farm from retiring vegetable farmers in 2011. The Wheatland Vegetable Farm, Chip and Susan Plank were like some of the front runners of the farmer's market movement in the DC area. So Potomac Vegetable Farms and Wheatland Vegetable Farms were like the heavy hitters in the early days, like the 90s going into every, they did every farmer's market in the area. And the planks, I mean, they did it for 30 plus years. And then when they retired, I think they were really happy that it was going to stay in this farm community. They were very happy that we bought it and were willing, everyone was willing to work to make sure that we could buy this farm. But yes, we, I mean, we have a mortgage. So I think for some people, they inherit family land and you're right, there is those. And then there are people who are working their asses off trying to pay their farm mortgage. But I think if you work on a farm, there is, I think, a little bit more of that feeling of like, yes, I mean, your food is provided for you most of the time. You're, if you're in a good situation, your housing is provided for you and it's not like a tent on a farm. We've tried to move away from that super rustic feel for workers too, because we want our workers to be happy. We literally cannot have what we have without them and we rely on them so much. We want them to be happy and enjoy their experience. And for them, a little bit more than us, they do get to kind of leave it at the end of the day. You know, like when they're done working at the end of the day, they can like go frolic in the field. Yeah. <laughs> and so we have a lot of like young 20 somethings into early 30s folks, a lot of which want to be career farmers. Not all of them. Like we've definitely had people over the years who want to just like try their hand out at farming for a season. I think because of this idealized like, oh, this is going to be so fun. <laughs> but a lot of the people we get do want to sort of like they want to farm for a living or they think they want to farm for a living. We need those folks. At this point, we have five that are going to be living on the farm this season. We've had anywhere from two to five is sort of our range of employees, but they are absolutely essential and we love them. So for someone who's listening, who's like, okay, but how much can I make or whatever? Is there anything you feel like you could throw out there comfortably? Don't make yourself uncomfortable at all. We play with our numbers a little bit every year by like how many members we have and how much money we would like to make. I mean, that changed a lot over the years. Having kids and I think just getting older has changed it a little bit. But Rob and I felt like we would feel great if we were both because, again, we are both full time. This is both of our full time jobs. We were th feeling like if we both made $40,000 a year, so $80,000 combined for our family, that we would feel really happy about that. 
And I think that was some years ago now. And when we look back at that sometimes now, I'm like, especially where we live now, like there's no money. Yeah. Yes. We don't expect to like have a lavish lifestyle. And we are incredibly privileged white people who also, you know, we have access to generational land. We have access to generational wealth. I mean, we have things that a lot of other people don't. And we recognize that all the time and are trying to really instill that in our children also. You know, I mean, I think as we've aged a little bit and had another kid, we've tried to up that income number a little bit because I also want to be able to like take my kids to do fun stuff and take them on vacation and have it not feel really stressful and I want to be able to like fix my roof when it leaks and I like, <laughs> just like basic. I mean, you know, like I feel like when Rob and I met, we were just like these like really idealistic hippies <laughs> who just like wanted to homestead and live in the barn and, and it was great and I loved it and it was totally, it's just, I, we've evolved away from that a little bit. We try to be incredibly transparent with our membership because I think we want people to know... I mean, more than what we make. And I, th I think it's important for them to know what we make because I think we want people to see what it costs to run a farm. You know, I think we want people to know what it actually is costing to produce the food that we're growing for you. And I think especially in the last couple of years with COVID and then, you know, this inflation that we're seeing, we felt like we needed to justify a price increase. Also, we really don't increase our prices often, but this year we needed to. And we felt like we needed to justify that cost, which I don't even know that we did. <laughs> I think most people were like, well, no, duh. These people are paying our salary. And so we need to show them where their money is going. It's almost like we're your board. No, exactly. And I think when people really like take the time to piece out what they're paying us versus what they're getting, I think they realize they're getting a hell of a deal, especially if they want to be buying like grass fed meats and unpasteurized dairy. I think they realize like, wow, we are getting a good deal here. They'll want to subsidize some shares so you can go to Disney World or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> like, here you go. But I think at the same time, you know, it costs a lot of money to run even a very small farm. And to pay people well, you pay five, like you said. Exactly. So one of our biggest costs is our staff and we need them and we love them and we want them to stick around as long as they want to be here and learn as much as they can from us. But we need to pay them a living wage. And that's really hard to do, especially when we get into the territory of like our workers are going to make more money than we are feels hard. You know, so this year we raised our prices to be able to kind of create a position where there's a more like salaried job for someone. We're catering it to a specific person because we just adore her and want her to stay. You know, we need to make more money. I want to jump in here that sometimes people will look at CSA membership fees and say, oh, that's too expensive. You know, I can go to the store and get, but there's several factors going on there. One is this, and this goes back to the lifestyle thing that I was talking about. When you start eating seasonally and bringing farm fresh food in, I'm speaking from our own experience, suddenly you're not getting takeout food. You're not going out to eat. And this is not because, oh, we've already spent money on this, so we shouldn't spend money on that. It's because look at this great food. This is what we want to eat. This is how we want to eat. And speaking about convenience, there, yeah, on one hand, for the conventional consumer, it might seem like 
It's inconvenient to drive to the farm and get your box and bring it home. But then, you know, think about that you're not going to the store every two days and you're not bringing home all these things wrapped in plastic. And then if something is less expensive in the grocery store and you're really conscious about the sourcing of your food, you need to understand that there's people all along the process in this that are not being paid very well. No, they're being exploited. They're, exactly. They're not being not paid well. They're being exploited. You said it, not me. I'm so glad you used that word. But it's absolutely true. Our procurement of our food as a culture is actually based on exploitation. Absolutely. Yeah, it's way underpriced. You are shifting that model. You're asking the consumer to recognize it. And it actually looks a little more expensive, maybe like on the price tag. But when you pull it out and break it down, it's really not. That's what I want to do right here is like pull this apart to listeners and say those things that you think are a great deal. It's just like clothes, all these things we talk about all the time. You think something is a great deal for you. It's really a terrible deal for people all along the supply chain. But the problem is if you don't know the direct source, then even if you're paying more for something, that doesn't mean that then people are getting treated well if you're paying more. No. Because there's also the other side of it is like, you know, there are crazy markups for no reason from brands and whose pockets are we, we don't know. Obviously, higher prices don't mean everyone's being fairly treated all along the way. This comes into knowing your supplier, knowing your farmer. Right. And there is no, in the idea of being transparent, there is no middle anything on our farm. There, I mean, actually, that's not true. We do buy in pork now. We took a few years off of producing pork. But we, like, we know the guy who's growing our pork and we're picking it up directly from him. So other than that aside, there's no middleman, you mean? Yes, there's no middle people like there's us and our staff. And then we give the people who are the end user our food. And so it's an incredibly transparent system. And I think when you go to the grocery store and you see a pint of cherry tomatoes that costs $1.99 in the height of the summer or what have you. Six dollars right now. (laughs) She didn't go to the store. (laughs) She doesn't. I'm like. I have no idea. $1.99 in 1992. (laughs) I'm using tomatoes as an example because think about the people who are picking those tomatoes in Florida. They are being paid next to nothing. And that is what is making it affordable for them to ship tomatoes up from Mexico or Florida in the summer. And so, I mean, it's asking a lot of consumers to know any of these things. It's just what you care about, putting your money where your mouth is. If you care about how immigrant labor is treated in the U.S., if you care about how animals are treated before they are in your freezer, these are the kinds of questions consumers should be asking. And I mean, it kind of depends on how deep you want to get into it. I, You know, at the same time, I think even us with what we do, like we are not food purists and I would never like food shame anyone for their food choices, right? I buy things at the grocery store just like everybody else, especially now that I have kids. Like they eat crackers <laughs> and we buy apples when we don't have them in the wintertime because my kids need to eat fruit to be healthy and they don't like frozen blueberries right now. You know what I mean? I mean, it's important I think with what you all do also in any kind of like ideas about slow living and sort of like sustainability 
it's hard to try to be a purist about it. Yeah, you can't. You can't. You'll drive yourself crazy. We also are culturally all American, which is like we're bred from our earliest days to not be any of that. We're like, <laughs> so I feel like even us, which like most of our food comes from our farm, you know, we buy stuff from the grocery store too. I try to be conscious about those decisions. We don't buy non-organic almost anything because I don't want my kids eating pesticide. But that is a choice. We choose to make that a choice for our family, right? And then similarly, I mean, for our CSA, I think one of the biggest important things for us, which Mary touched on, was it eliminates so much food packaging and so much food waste. And I mean, I even remember early on in my 20s, like the sheer amount of like packaging of stuff just like caused anxiety for me. And so, you know, some years ago, we decided to try to be plastic free as much as we could be on the farm. And so like all of our yogurt and cheese and cream is in glass now that's returnable and reusable. And we switched to, you know, we incurred a big cost of switching to like compostable bags instead of plastic bags. And people have to bring their own milk jars. We make people bring their own milk jars. We really encourage people to bring their own reusable containers for their food as well. And so if that is something that's important to you, it's a way to like really eliminate your food packaging. You have to work hard at that. That's crazy. Yeah. And you have to decide what you care about in making these kind of decisions. People are so free to talk about systemic racism and and how we need to change it and how we need to shift. But one thing we can all do is recognize how much of that is within our daily needs and how much we participate in those things through our food, clothing, and the things we use every day. That's kind of what she was saying before, like immigrant labor is we rely on that so much more than people even realize. Exactly. And it's such a buzzword, systemic racism and systemic inequality and social justice and all that is so tied into the things we buy every day. So before we wind up, let's, I want to hear you talk about your regenerative and or sustainable or whatever you call it, those practices that you employ here on the farm. And you can even talk to the good dirt question if you want while you're doing that. Yeah. I mean, so we are on our farm, we are practice organic organic practices, but we're not certified organic. For people who don't know, to get that label, that green and white label on your product, you have to go through a verification certification process that has sort of guidelines for what you can put on your food. So pesticides, fungicides, herbicides, the practices you can use for your animals. And for us, it's just never made sense to certify organic. We don't label any of our products. And also, again, we're pretty dang transparent. So people just come to our farm and it doesn't seem to matter to our members whether or not we have that label or not. I might feel differently if we went to farmers markets because I think some consumers recognize that label for what it means. I think others just go to farmer's markets and assume everything at the farmer's market is organic, which I discovered in my research. And I was like, no, no, it's not. But what that means for us, and you know, there are some regulations under the organic label that we don't even do. For example, like you can spray pyrethrins, which is a class of bio pesticide. We choose not to you know, it is a little toxic to the environment and to pollinators and things. So again, we can kind of pick and choose because we're not subject to the regulations, but we do not spray any chemical fungicides or pesticides or herbicides on our farm. People get misled by that. That does not mean we don't do anything for pest control or for fungus control. We've just chosen not to use any chemical additives. So There are an amazing amount of things you can do sort of mimicking the natural world or creating barriers that 
help. And so we are spraying things, quote unquote. But for example, we use a product called Surround, which is kaolin clay. It's the same thing that like face masks are made out of. And if you spray that clay on your squash plants, squash bugs don't like it. They don't attack your squash plants and you don't get downy mildew. So things like that, it's a misnomer that we like don't spray anything. We are managing our fields very intensively. We're just not using toxic chemicals. And so that's one of the things that I think people don't understand about organic agriculture. For us, the most important thing on our farm is our soil. Everything we do, we're thinking about taking good care of our soil. So we can't do what we do without healthy soil down to growing vegetables to the grass that feeds our cows that makes our milk. We need healthy soils. And by healthy soils, we mean soils that are alive. They need to be biologically rich. And I'm talking like not only just earthworms and insects. I mean, one handful of dirt has like five to 50 billion fungus and bacteria in it. And to be able to grow successfully and to grow in the way we want we need a really biologically active soil. We also need it to be minerally rich. One of the biggest interesting things that's happened in the world is that because all of our soils are so stripped of minerals, particularly trace minerals, a lot of vegetables and animals have no trace minerals in them anymore because they don't doesn't exist in the soil. And so a carrot is not a carrot is a carrot. A carrot grown in microbially rich trace mineral rich soil is a completely different carrot that's coming from a conventional farm that doesn't have any of those things. Truly, the actual components of that carrot are different. Every human is now like magnesium deficient or zinc deficient or selenium deficient because it's just not in our soil anymore. So it's not in our food. And the reason it's not is because we're just taking and taking and taking from the soil and not putting anything back. There are ways to measure that. It's not just Oh, yeah. 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 Soil tests. Oh, yeah. You dig up a soil rod and send it to the lab and the lab will tell you what's in your soil. And what about the actual carrot? Is there a way to measure in the carrot, this carrot? There is. So there's the most popular way amongst like farms like ours is to do a BRICS reading. And a BRICS reading is the sugar content of said vegetable or fruit. You can do it with grass too. So you can test the bricks for like pasture feeding. And one thing that that tells you, and I think is also just taste like it's, so the bricks reading is the reason why like a cherry tomato grown here is going to taste very different than the one you're getting because it's just got a higher bricks. So it's, that's why you get that like sweetness, that flavor. That's like, this tastes good. (laughs) That's usually a higher bricks. What managing our soil means for us is we do very intensive cover cropping and cover cropping means that we are growing plants and harvesting sunlight just to feed the soil. So all we're doing with these plants is feeding the life in our soil. So we're capturing the sunlight in a plant. And then the only thing we're going to do is we're going to let that plant die, incorporate it back into the soil, and that's going to feed our soil life. So there's a difference between a cover crop and a cash crop. So when we're growing a cover crop, it's going to feed our soil. When we're growing a cash crop, that's what feeds us and our members. Any land that we have that's not being used for you know, producing a cash crop or grazing animals is going to be under a cover crop. We try to get multiple cover crops on in one season. So that's one thing that we do manage very intensively. The other thing we do is we add rock minerals. It's a long-term investment, but again, so the trace minerals that we know we're deficient in because we've done our soil testing on all of our fields, we add rock minerals that will break down over time and start adding those things back into our soils. In thinking about what 
sort of regenerative agriculture means to us. We want to try to leave our land healthier every season. To be honest, it makes growing easier. Healthy plants and healthy trees and healthy animals resist bacteria and diseases and just like bodies, <laughs> just like human bodies. The more we can up the immunity of our plants, the more we don't have to fight against pests and diseases. So when Ted got back yesterday with the CSA pickup and there was this big bunch of kale there and I was hungry. So I just picked it up and started eating the kale raw, which is not something you would normally do, you know? And it was so sweet. Sweet? Raw kale? Whoever heard of that? And I said, Dan, you got to taste this. You know, it just, it, it was, it was so delicious. It's because it's winter. Yeah. So cold weather turns starch in plants into sugar. I've been noticing that about the greens are sweet. Winter greens are sweet. Yeah. So delightful. But Maureen, Mo, what does slow living mean to you? That is a good question. I think more than anything, it just means not growing through the motions of your day without recognizing, like taking a moment to actually think about what you're doing, what you're doing. I mean, for me specifically, I think it's hard sometimes to not just like, I got to get through the day. I have so many things, like my brain is in a thousand different places. I think like we were talking about a few minutes ago, just recognizing like how interconnected all of the things are for me and how like one action sort of affects everything else on the farm. I mean, our whole job is to manage an ecosystem. That's what we're doing, right? We're very intensively managing this small ecosystem. And so I think to do it slowly is to just go with purpose, go ahead with purpose. That's awesome. Do you ever feel like you're eye rolly at slow living because you're like a full-time farmer mom? And it's hard to slow down. I mean, I really respect people who want to like try to have a little homestead or like a farmette because I think it really, I mean, it really is a great way to live your life. It's a little simpler. It's like taking a step back and just like having things be a little bit simpler, but no, not really. I mean, I feel like, okay, good. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, I feel, I think for most people, there's like I was talking about trying to not be a purist about any of it because then it just carries so much guilty feelings, which doesn't help anybody, right? So things that are intertwined, like slow fashion and trying to reduce your plastic use and it's just like, just make one step and then I think you're moving in the right direction, right? And that's slow. Exactly. You have to do it slow or it's like you can't do it. And if you're really engaged in growing things, you experience slowness, just your very occupation because... I mean, everyone jokes about the $64 tomato, right? Yeah. <laughs> but you're going to really enjoy that tomato. Yeah. <laughs> that's what you are. You've spoken so beautifully to your idea of good dirt in terms of the farm and your growing, but do you have anything else to add to that? Like, what does a good dirt mean to you on any other level? I mean, truly, because when you say it, what I think of is like active soil. Like, <laughs> yeah. And that's a good answer. <laughs> yeah. I think like total farm nerd style. Like, are you one of those people that gets offended by the word dirt too, where it's like, it's soil, not dirt? No, not at all. No. Okay. <laughs> no, not at all. Again, I was also like from the suburbs. One of the biggest revelations to me was when I realized the difference between hay and straw. Oh, me too. I mean, <laughs> that was like revolutionary to me. And that was like recent. Yeah. <laughs> So no, yeah. I'm, yeah, I, I feel like I still call it dirt. Yeah. Well, this has been awesome. It's been so fun talking to you. Is there anything else that you want listeners to understand about the work that you do? I think the main thing is that we really, really love what we do. And I think, again, speaking from a place of privilege, I recognize that like I'm choosing to do this for a living and 
it may not be the easiest profession for a lot of reasons, but I really, really love it. And I think to be a good farmer, I think you really have to love what you do. I think you also, my husband and I talk a lot about, I think you also have to kind of be a perpetual optimist. Every spring, there's this like new hopeful feeling that you have. And I feel like if you don't hold on really, really strong to that, you're going to burn out really fast in this world. For what we do, I feel like if we don't love it and we're not optimistic, we're not excited to wake up every day, we're not going to be able to make this work. So we try to really keep perspective on that. For sure. And it's also the kind of thing where like one weather event can just... Yeah. I mean, you got to be able to like wake up the next day and do it again. You know, I think it takes a particular kind of person. And again, I think it takes a really hardcore optimist (laughs) sometimes to be able to do that because it really is so much of it is just so out of your control. And, you know, I mean, I think you can do your best. And I mean, it's the same way, like on a day where it's like, you know, 100 degrees and you're picking thousands of pounds of tomatoes and then a cow's down with a milk fever and or whatever. I mean, these days sort of they all seem to happen. All the bad things seem to happen at once, just like in everybody's life. But I think if you're not able to get up the next day and be excited about trying to do it better the next day, you're going to have a hard time being a farmer. (laughs) That's really good advice. Thank you, Mo. This was great. Thank you, guys. It was so nice to see your face. Yeah, it's fun fun to be here on the land where our food comes from. It's very, very exciting. Yeah, we love having you. We're happy to do it. Thank you for tuning in, calling in, and spreading the good dirt. We love hearing from you. You can reach our listener voicemail at 443-459-1950. That's 443-459-1950. You can find this number in our show notes and in our Instagram profile. This show is produced by Lady Farmer, a slow living lifestyle community. And the original music is composed and performed by John Kingsley. For more from Lady Farmer, follow us on Instagram at WeAreLadyFarmer. That's WeAreLadyFarmer. Or join us online at www.ladyfarmer.com. We'll see you next time on The Good Dirt. Goodbye.